And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome, everybody, to Podcast 63. What began as an April podcast has now slid into May, and we're sorry for our spottiness. But, of course, things have gotten weird. The weirdest in our relatively short lives, I reckon. We hope this podcast finds you doing mostly well. Uncle Frank's and my family are fine, but our good friend Jack has a sister with the virus, and she asks that we keep her in our prayers. A few of my mom's acquaintances are also sick, and a lot of us are out of work, and everybody is stir-crazy. All very grim, despite the recent modest good news. And that's why tonight, we thought we'd concentrate on some distraction. Comedy, mostly. Uncle Frank, what are some examples? Well, we have old ads and lots of novelty songs. A short Sherlock Holmes audio drama with Sir John Gielgud and Sir Ralph Richardson. Stand-up from greats like Phyllis Diller and the old team of Tim Conway and Ernie Anderson, who you might remember as Goulardi, the Cleveland horror host. And then there's our tribute to those thrilling old men in their miniature driving machines. That's right, Shriners and Clown Cars. How they got here, what they're about, and why we love them. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's get started. Uh, let's see. Ah, yes, there you are. Just arrived in town, I see, sir. Huh? Oh, no. Oh, my, no. Please. Oh? Well, you're just uh, leaving, then? Oh, no, no. I'm just going to put these bags in my car. Oh, you're taking a little motor trip. Well, I planned a motor trip, but I'm not actually going. You see, I get a big kick out of planning motor trips, but I can't stand being away from home. Oh. So I just map out a long trip, put my empty bags in the car, and then, well, I just... Drive around the block. <laughs> it's been nice talking to you. I'll see you later. Well, this year I'm planning not to drive to Salt Lake City, Bar Harbor, Maine, and Medicine Hat, Wisconsin. Why, Mr. Allen, in the next three years, I figure I won't drive a total of 165,000 miles. Well, that's lucky for your car. Oh, gracious, my car could take it all right. It's oh. a solid 60 Plymouth. Yeah? It's got a life expectancy of 200,000 miles. Now, the average driver like me drives around town all oh, about 35,000 miles in three years. Uh -huh. And that gives me uh, 165,000 for trips I won't take. Yeah, well, I know now that Plymouth is solid, but 200,000 miles? Oh, yes. You see, as Pete Hansen told me, 
Now here's the reason why Plymouth has a life expectancy of 200,000 miles. Dura Quiet Unibody Construction. You see, Plymouth's body and undersills are welded together into one solid unit of tremendous strength. Now compare that with this other method of construction, that is, a separate body and frame fastened together with bolts like this to work loose and rattle and cause trouble. Welded unibody construction gives you just one tight, sturdy steel structure to help keep Plymouth solid for a long, long time. Also, there are many other quality features that mean a longer life and lower upkeep. So... I kind of get the idea. When you found out about Plymouth's 200,000-mile life expectancy, you uh, bought one and planned a lot of trips not to take, huh? That's the idea, Mr. Allen. Oops. Yeah, yeah, I gotta run. Oh. I'm not leaving for Tacoma, Washington in an hour. Yeah, well, if you can't wait a minute, I, uh, I won't go with you. <laughs> Boy. Well, folks, if you're interested in honest, long-lasting quality, obviously the thing to do is try what we believe to be the best-performing car in the low-price class. That's Plymouth, Charlie. It sure is solid for 60. I hear the pitter-patter of little people on the living room rug Woe is me, there goes the TV Now it's Popeye and Pluto, Batman and Bozo Don't spill the cornflakes, they'll break at lunch break Home from the office, why did I stop to have a beer with the boys Now my head's about to pop, this Saturday morning confusion If you think you can sleep, it's illusion Cause you probably get a rude intrusion from Harry the dog Harry the dog is as big as can be And Harry the dog had puppies last week We couldn't tell if it's a he or a she Now we know It's a Saturday morning confusion If I could just get to the bathroom And get a cool rag and an aspirin to help I feel But here come the twins and they're screaming at me What is the deal? Who turned off the TV? Go ask your mother and quietly your daddy is ill There he is Cousin Jack, you got the leaf rake to get that's it till I get it all back. Hanging round my yard, snooping in my garage. I tolerate him because he's my cousin. He's nice to the kids and Harry just loves him. It's Saturday morning confusion. And if I could just hide in the attic, cause I can hear my wife yelling, take them all to the show. I'll take the whole neighborhood to the show I'll just walk out and back where the money tree grows Grab me a handful and off to the show we'll go It's a Saturday morning confusion And if I could just get a transfusion Or maybe go hide in the bedroom at five o'clock Let it be known that at five the TV Is gonna be tuned to the game of the week And that goes for dogs and twins and the whole family it's a Saturday morning confusion. It's a Saturday morning confusion. Day is done. Cousin Jack in his yard cooking steaks on a grill that I'll never get back. The twins in front of the TV. Harry with his family. Sis on her date. Mom at the door smiles as she surveys the sight. 
For the first time today, the kingdom is quiet. Lord, let us thank you for Saturdays and may they remain my friends. Cause I work all week long, you keep strong till they're grown. And next Saturday then, we'll do it again. When here they come, warming up, I hear the bitter patter of little people on a living room rug. Flying is no longer a luxury. Actually, it's a necessity in this country, and it's also a multi-million dollar business. However, major airlines have made it very difficult for smaller airlines to survive. And today, we're going to be talking to a man who is faced with just such a problem. He is Dag Herford. He's president of Lars Airlines. Mr. Herford, I guess we could say that you have one of the smaller airlines. Yes, that's right. Yeah. How many planes do you have? Uh, we have none. <laughs> you have none? Well. What effect does that have on your business? Well, it's kept maintenance costs way down. <laughs> I don't understand. You, you still sell tickets. Oh, yes, yeah, we still sell tickets. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, what do the people say when they show up and then they find out you don't have any airlines? Well, they just say, uh, hey, you don't have any airplanes. You get a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> do they, they, they get mad? Oh, yeah, they get real mad, yeah. Well, I certainly can't say as I blame them. Well, me either. You know, there's no refund on those tickets. <laughs> well, what do they do? Well, a lot of them just go out on the runway with their luggage and they sit there so no planes can land. Uh, we're kind of glad we don't have any because, boy, there are always somebody out there. The luggage and everything. It's a mess. Did, did you ever have any planes? Yeah, we had a plane about uh, three years ago we had one, you know. Well, what happened to it? Well, Mr. Lars, the president of the airlines, was also the pilot and uh, he was about 82, so yeah. uh, we had to ground him. He couldn't fly. Oh, he doesn't fly anymore? Well, just Cleveland to Pittsburgh. Cleveland, Pittsburgh? I thought you said you grounded him. Well, we did. Uh, he just taxis all the way. <laughs> he had a toll gate last week, got a ticket. I can't go on. No food, no water. It's all my fault. We're done for. It's got me. <laughs> I can't stand it. No food, no nothing. No food, no water. <laughs> no food. <laughs> What's the matter with you anyway? There's New York. We'll be picked up in a few minutes. You had to open your big mouth and ruin the only good scene I got in the picture. I might have won an Academy Award. The Templeton Twins pose the musical question by the time I get to Phoenix. Twins? By the time I get to Phoenix, she'll be rising. She'll find the note I left hanging on her door. She'll laugh when she reads the part that says I'm leaving. Cause I've left that girl so many times before. By the time I make Albuquerque, she'll be working. She'll probably stop at lunch and give me a call. But she'll just hear that phone go right on ringing off the wall. That's all. By the time I make Oklahoma, she'll be sleeping. She'll turn softly and call my name out loud. And she'll cry just to think I'd really leave her. 
Though time and time I try to tell her so She just didn't know decision about it, I'm not gonna fight it. I'll tell you why, I'm a very poor loser. <laughs> and I've never seen a winner. <laughs> oh, I've been watching Mother. <laughs> oh, she doesn't know the fight's over. And it's very embarrassing when you and your mother are both approaching the same age from opposite directions. <laughs> Oh, dear. You know, I'm so serious about this old age bit that I want to tell you, I have a goal, and I would really love to live to be a hundred. <laughs> That's one of my goals, and I'll tell you why. I don't think they expect to damn much of you at that age. <laughs> you know, when they start bossing you around, I bet you can look them right in the eye and say, I'm poop. <laughs> and if I make it, I've got a plan. I know exactly how I'm going to play it. I'm going to be a sweet, innocent, little, white-haired old lady. <laughs> With a cane full of gin. <laughs> and I have a very good chance of making it. My grandfather is 105. <laughs> of course, he's been dead for 20 <laughs> And he's still at the head of the table. <laughs> Well, we can hardly eat. <laughs> you know, nothing will kill a meal like one person not enjoying. <laughs> one line in a will, and there he sits. And we got 20 years to go. <laughs> That's a lot of eating out. I couldn't tell you how many women I know. I know I have this one very elderly woman friend who has had that face lifted so many times. There is nothing in her shoes. She wears a dog collar to cover up her navel. And there are a lot of other problems you would never think about. I guess she thought about them. Well, for one thing, she's had this done so many times that she can't ever stop smiling. <laughs> she's a mess at a funeral. It must be true, cause I heard it on the radio. It must be true, it must be true. Welcome to the official demo for Dora Capella's Volume 2, a 99-cut CD from radio's favorite purveyor of stylized nonsense, L.A. Air Force. Dorcapella's Volume 2 includes eight show opens. Dear Wacky, they're zany, 
nine intros for people like your boss, the sales weasels, and this guy. Hail to the chief engineer. 22 feature intros, including these two. The first for your daily horoscope, and the second for a smooth segue into sports. Here's your highly scientific and completely infallible and often inscrutable guaranteed horoscope for today. Time to talk about sports. Please lower your IQ. Dorkapella's Volume 2 includes five cuts to use with on-air phone calls. What's on your mind? We'd really like to hear. All calls are recorded. 17 cuts to use before, during, and after contests. Here's one to start the phones ringing. Oh, now it's time to call and win. There's really nothing to it. Just pick up that little telephone. We're sure that you can do it. And here's another to get the phones to stop ringing. Hang up the phone. We've got a winner, so just hang up the phone. Dorcapella's Volume 2 also features 23 comment jingles. Use these to comment on your show. Sometimes we're funny, sometimes we suck. Or to issue a formal apology. We are sorry. Oh, so sorry. 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 We'll never do it again. You'll also get seven dumb positioning jingles. Really cool sign-offs. Goodbye, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. We're back tomorrow with another show. Well, unless we're fired, we'll talk to you then. Goodbye, sweetheart. Goodbye. Goodbye. And six weather intros, beds, and closes, including this. That's the intro. There's also a really great close that goes with it. Unfortunately, we don't have time to play the close during this demo. But if we did, this is what it would sound like. Now you be warm and dry, things won't fall on you from the sky. Capella's Volume 2 is produced, trademarked, and copyrighted by L.A. Air Force and is sold at a ridiculously low one-time buyout fee. If you'll send us some money, we'll send you a CD filled with 99 great cuts, fully licensed for local on-air use. Dorcapella's Volume 2 from L.A. Air Force. Buy it once. Use it forever. Thanks for stopping by. Now get out! What you're about to see matter of human record. Explain it, we cannot. Disprove it, we cannot. We simply invite you to explore with us the amazing world of the unknown. 
to take that one step beyond. that I would ever miss crowds, but I sort of do now. I miss family gatherings the most, of course, and going to work, but I'm even starting to miss waiting in line, not to mention the movies, national parks, and parades. There was no St. Patrick's Day parade in Ventura this year. Mule Days was canceled, and who knows what else is in danger. I miss the bands, the floats, the horses, but what I miss most are the Shriners, the Shriner Motor Patrols to be exact. We've always been able to count on that tiny car brigade. Now that I think of it, they were always the highlight of any parade. Sorry, Shriners, I didn't fully appreciate you and your miniature cars until you were gone. Actually, they didn't just ride in autos, but all sorts of mini conveyances. Tow trucks, buses, motorbikes, race cars, even boats and airplanes. And none of these compact hoopties were just driven down the parade route. They were zigzag, serpentine fashion, driven in circles or formations, and some of the more daring ones would get up on two wheels or do occasional donuts. One group in Boston would drive up ramps on a special full-size vehicle and go right over and down the other side. Nobody knows exactly how many Shriner motor patrols are out there. In true Shriner fashion, each branch is free to start or stop a patrol at will and pick whatever type of vehicles they want to drive. At one local convention in Anaheim, though, the tiny vehicles brought there filled a whole long city block. What we know for certain is that all these motor patrols have become part of popular culture. The dead Kennedys even put them on the cover of their Frankenstein Christ album. In case you're wondering about the specs on these Shriner mobiles, 
Car and driver did performance tests on several patrols and found that their vehicle's top speed was 33.8 miles per hour, but it took 31.9 seconds to reach that speed. The faster trucks got up to 18 miles per hour, but it only took them 18 seconds. So how did all this joy get started? Well, it came out of the Shriners, and they got their start in 1870. Two men, Walter Fleming and William Florence, began an offshoot of the Masons, one that emphasized more fun and fellowship. The idea for the Middle Eastern theme came from Florence. He had gone to a party one evening given by a diplomat from the Middle East, and during this party, a musical comedy was performed. It took place in some fantasy Arabia or Egypt and was filled with costumes from those areas. And at the end of the play, the whole audience of partygoers were sworn into a secret society. Florence was so enthused he took notes and did sketches. He later showed them all to Fleming, who now got enthused and came up with a ritual and costumes. On August 13, 1870, the two men initiated each other into the ancient Arabic order of the nobles of the mystic shrine. A month later, they initiated 11 other members. From that small group, a huge club grew. For the next 50 years, the Shriners were satisfied just having a good old silly time. But in 1920, partly because of the polio problem in America, they voted to build a hospital for crippled children. They built that hospital, and that eventually led to a whole network of hospitals across the country. In the 1920s, to call attention to their charity and drum up some donations, they began to march in parades with crazy get-ups. Actually, some of them probably already did this, but now it became common. And some genius in that same decade built himself a tiny car, and it looked like so much fun that other Shriners joined in. The trend exploded in the 50s and 60s with the coming of the go-kart fad. You could get plans from magazines for these contraptions, and soon you could get kits from Sears or JCPenney's. Eventually, companies that just built these custom go-karts sprung up to fill the need. And the rest is history. A beautiful history. So let's hear a round of applause for the whimsy and good works of those fez-wearing heroes and their tiny machines. Yeah, they come down Main Street drums are flailing and sirens are wailing what a roar. Bands are playing, flags are waving, vanguards and motorcycle corps. Clowns are reclining to the crowd and pinching every pretty girl who dares to smile. It's a glorious mess, everybody wears a fizz, the parade stretches out for a mile. It's a typical American phenomenon where all the members have a fine old time. It's the 43rd annual convention of the Grand Mystic Royal Order of the Nobles of the Alibaba Temple of the Shrine. Hello, operator. Give me room 321, please. Thank you. Hello, Noble Lumpkin. This here is the Luster's Potentate. I said it's the Luster's Potentate. The Luster's Coy, Dad, blame it, this bubble. Go, why wasn't you at the parade? What? Well, how'd you get that big Harley up there in your room? What? I can't hear you, Coy. Quit revving it up, son. Turn it off. Listen, I just want you to know one thing. You have embarrassed us all, the whole Hey Hira delegation. Now, I'll see you at the banquet tonight, son, and you be there, Coy. You hear me? Black tie, 7 o'clock. Be there, and Coy, don't answer the phone. Uddin', uddin'. <gasps> well, it was all arranged by the ladies' auxiliary in the downtown convention hall. 
cold roast beef, string beans, mashed potatoes, and nine boring speeches and all. And all the tables look fine with the Morgan David wine and chrysanthemums on each side. And the hay hire leaders in the rented tuxedos made the local heart swell with pride. It's a typical American phenomenon where all the members have a final old time. It's the 43rd annual convention of the Grand Mystic Royal Order of the Nobles of the Alibaba Temple of the Shrine. Operator 321, please. Thank you. Hello, Coy. What are you doing? What do you mean, who is this? This is Bubba. Why wasn't you at the banquet? What do you mean all you had to wear was a high volume flaherty shirt? Well, you may think you're fooling some people, but I know what's going on. Yeah, and everybody's seen the little redhead. That's right, everybody. Why, she come running right through the dinner, right in the middle of the pineapple sherbet. Didn't have nothing on but your fez, Coy. Coy, you the only one's got a fez with a propeller on top. Yeah, yeah, and she's yelling out the secret code too, Coy. Dead blame it, we're going to have to change it now, Coy. We're going to have to have a special meeting when we get back to Hay Hyrule about your conduct at this here convention. Embarrassing. Now, Coy, you be at the secret conclave tonight, you hear me? And Coy, keep it a secret. Well, it was a secret meeting in the dead of the night with mysterious sanctimony. In accordance with prescribed rituals of time-honored ceremony. Matters of grave concern were weighed with dedicated caution. Like whether or not to raise it, stood or draw or spit in the ocean. It's a typical American phenomenon where all the members have a final time. It's the 43rd. Annual convention of the Grand Mystic Royal Order of the Nobles of the Alibaba Temple of the Shrine. Operator, room 320. How'd you know? Oh. Hello, Coy. Where have you been? Knew you wasn't at the meeting. Well. I found out that at 3 o'clock this morning you was out there in your fruit of the looms in the motel swimming pool with a bunch of them waitresses from the cocktail lounge. I just hope your mama don't find out about this, Coy. What? Well, how'd you get that big motorcycle up there on the high dive, Coy? Now, Coy, Dad, blame it, that ain't no way to act. We supposed to be pillars of the community. When we get back to Hay Hyrule, you can just turn in your ring and your tie tag, cause Coy, <laughs> You are out of the shrine. You're gonna be blackballed, boy. That's right. You might even have to pack your bags and leave town. What do you mean you might join the Hells Angels? Coy, don't you hang up on me. Hello, hello. Don't you crank that motorcycle. Who's that giggling in the background, Coy? Hello, hello. Operator, yeah, we cut off. Room 321. Yeah, blame Coy, you don't hang up on the luster's post. Look, here is the new Band-Aid plastic strip with new Super Stick. It sticks better than any other bandage. The proof? Take a dry egg at room temperature. Touch the egg with any other bandage. Brand X, brand Y, brand Z. Not one sticks. But a Band-Aid plastic strip with new Super Stick sticks tight instantly. Watch it again in slow motion.
No pressure, yet we can lift the egg, even boil it. And the Band-Aid plastic strip never comes loose. Maybe you don't want to broil eggs this way, but you do want the extra protection of Band-Aid plastic strips. They take better care of little cuts and scratches. They stay put. Yes, even in hot, soapy dishwater. Neat, fresh-colored, almost invisible. Band-Aid plastic strips with new Super Stick stick better than any other bandage. Made only by Johnson & Johnson, the most trusted name in surgical dressings. Be sure you get Band-Aid plastic strips. television show, uh, which some of you may have seen, apparently not too many of you saw, uh, <laughs> on NBC about two years ago. And we used to, one of the problems we had with the TV show, uh, we had a number of problems with the TV show, but one of, one of the problems we had was that we weren't always seen at the same time in each city. This is important for a rating. And like we were normally seen here at 10 o'clock on Wednesday nights, but um, for instance, we were seen in Albuquerque on what they call a delayed broadcast at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and you may laugh at that, but uh, we were the top in our time slot in, in Albuquerque at, uh, <clears throat> at two o'clock in the morning. We, uh, we beat out Sign Off and Today's Meditation. We, we clobbered today's, uh, today's Meditation. And uh, you, you never like to beat a religious show, but uh, 
you know, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog business, so you, you know, you do, you do the best you can. But we used to do a thing on the show, we used to take commercials, and we would just change the very last line of the commercials and make them come out the way I think most people would like to see commercials come out, because most people are offended. They're an affront to your intelligence, you know, average television commercial. Uh, they are aimed, this I know for a fact, they're aimed at the 12-year-old mentality, and those of us with, you know, 13 and 14-year-old mentalities, <laughs> we object to it. And it causes a lot of frustration. So one thing you can do, if you take the commercial you hate the most, and just change the very last line, you'll find you'll start looking forward <laughs> to seeing this particular commercial. And it's kind of fun to do at home. There are some commercials you cannot touch. Some of them are beauties in and of themselves, and you cannot, it would be gilding the lily to try to change some of the commercials. Like there's one that's very popular now. It's just coming out. Uh, it's an interview. A guy's standing there, and another guy with a microphone, and he says, uh, Well, I tried Beep Beep, and uh, <laughs> I, got, I got about four shaves. Then I went to Beep Beep, and I got up to about 10 with Beep Beep, but when I tried the new, and then he names the, the thing, you know, and uh, he says, so it's much better than Beep Beep or Beep Beep. <laughs> and you know, the drugstores are doing a land office business in Beep Beep blades, because I'd love to get four, four, you know, shaves out of a blade. I don't care what the name. Here is one which is the most hated commercial on television. It is the greatest affront to your intelligence. It shows a guy driving into his driveway, and there's a kid's bike in the driveway. <laughs> and he stops suddenly, he becomes very irate, and he leans out the window. He says, he says, Mary, Mary, will you please get Johnny's bike out of that driveway? And this, this woman comes out of the house, and she says, uh, Mr. Brown, you're in the wrong driveway. <laughs> Walking down the beach one bright and sunny day I saw a great big wooden box a-floatin' in the bay I pulled it in and opened it up and much to my surprise Ooh, I discovered a Right before my eyes Ooh, I discovered a Right before my eyes I picked it up and ran to town as happy as a king I took it to a guy I knew who'd buy most anything But this is what he hollered at me as I walked in his shop Ooh, get out of here with that Before I call a cop Ooh, get out of here with that Before I call a cop I turned around and got right out of running for my life And then I took it home with me to give it to my wife but this is what she hollered at me as I walked in the door. Oh, get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. Oh, oh get out of here with that. And don't come back no more. I wandered all around the town until I chanced to meet a hobo who was looking for a handout on the street. He said he'd take most any old thing. He was a desperate man. But when I showed him the... He turned around and ran, oh, when I showed him the, he turned around and ran. I wandered on for many years, a victim of my fate, until one day I came upon St. Peter at the gate. And when I tried to take it inside, he told me where to go, get out of here with that, 
And take it down below. Oh, get out of here with that. And take it down below. The moral of the story is if you're out on the beach and you should see a great big box and it's within your reach, don't ever stop and open it up. That's my advice to you. Cause you'll never get rid of the no matter what you do. Oh, you'll never get rid of the no matter what you do. As the executor of Mr. Muldoon's estate, I have been empowered to read Mr. Muldoon's last will and testament. Well, get on with it. The bar's open soon. <laughs> oh, poor dear Arthur. Ah! Oh, there, there, Jenny. God, how predictably boring. I never work for a kinder man. If we are all seated, I shall proceed with the reading. I knew it. <laughs> I, Arthur Durham Muldoon, being of sound mind and body... That's a laugh. <laughs> ...do hereby divide up my considerable estate as follows. To my overly emotional sister, Jenny... <laughs> Jenny, darling, he's talking about us. ...who grubbed with her husband, Hank, grubbed for everything they could get from me, and then cried crocodile tears when I needed sympathy. What? To Jenny, I leave... A boot to the head. A what? Ow! <laughs> Jenny, are you okay? And another boot to her wimpy husband, Hank. Ow! <laughs> this is an outrage. Ah, but still, you are my sister. You have both admired my Rolls Royce, and since I no longer need it... Oh, dear Arthur, he's too kind. I bequeath another boot to the head. What? Ow! <laughs> and one more for the win. Next to my alcoholic brother... Hey, I don't want no boot to the head. To dear Hedge, who has never worked a day in his drunken life... I'm covering up my head. I leave my wine cellar and three crates of my finest whiskey. Really? And a boot to the head. Oh! And another for Jenny in the wind. Oh! Oh! Next to my know-it-all nephew, Ralston... This is so predictable. I leave a boot to the head. Oh, I knew it. And one for Jenny and the Wimp. Oh! Oh! This takes care of family obligations. And now to Mrs. Mulroy. Oh, I don't want nothing. Who took care of me faithfully these many, many years. Who cared, made me laugh, brought me tea. Oh, I didn't mind. To Mrs. Mulroy, I bequeath a boot to the head. Oh! And one for Jenny and the Wimp. And so to my cat mittens, I leave my entire vast boot to the head. And finally to my lawyer, who has helped me on this will, I leave not a boot to the head, but a rabid Tasmanian devil to be placed in his trousers. Oh, oh, and, and, and I leave my entire estate of $10 million to the people of Calgary so they can afford to move somewhere decent. That's it? That's disgraceful. Yeah, There's one last thing for everyone. Cover your heads, everybody. <laughs> I leave everyone a lifetime supply of ice cream. Ice cream? Ice cream. Ice cream, that's all? That's all. Well, what flavor is it? Boot to the head. They repossessed my car. I said, I'll get it back again. I'll fight them finance people till the end. Here's my delinquent payment, and I'll give you some to boot. Now give me back my car and take my loot. 
They said, I think you're just a little bit late We can't mess around while you procrastinate We auctioned off your car, well, you know, that's the way we are Sorry you're a little too late So then I had to catch the city bus to get to work on time I missed the one at eight, had to catch the one at nine I finally got to work about a quarter after ten And I went to tell the foreman where I'd been He said, I think you're just a little bit late And fellow, that's the kind of thing I hate I don't want to make you sore, but we can't use you anymore Sorry you're a little too late So then my wife backed up and left I said, she can't do that to me I guess I'll have to show her what a lover I can be So I bought a dozen roses and said, baby, please come home Your lover boy can't stand to be alone She said, I think you're just a little bit late See, I went and got myself another mate He's handsomer than you, he has a car, he's working too Sorry you're a little <laughs> Well, after the divorce, I ended up without a dime you can see that I was forced to lead a life of sin and crime. I gambled and I plundered and I smoked and cursed and drank. Even tried to rob the local bank. They said, I think you're just a little bit late. See, there's nothing in our vault for you to take. You're the second crook today. The other robber got away. Sorry, you're a little too late. Well, the time in jail I spent has made me see that I was wrong. I've decided to repent and take it easy from now on. But when I die and climb those golden stairs on Judgment Day, the man will probably look at me and say, I think you just a little bit late. We all full up right now, you have to wait. Why don't you go on down below? If something break, we let you know. Sorry you're song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy, in every life we have some trouble, but when you worry you make it double, don't worry, be happy, don't worry, be happy now. Don't 
The landlord say your rent is late He may have to litigate But don't worry <laughs> Be happy Look at me, I'm happy Don't worry Be happy hey, I give you my phone number When you worry, call me, I make you happy Ain't got no cash, ain't got no style Ain't got no gal to make you smile But don't worry Be happy Cause when you worry your face will frown And that will bring everybody down So don't worry Be happy Don't worry, be happy now Don't worry, be happy, don't worry, be happy, don't worry, be happy, don't worry, be happy, don't worry, don't worry. Be happy. Put a smile on your face. Don't bring everybody down like this. Don't worry. It will soon pass, whatever it is. Don't worry. Be happy. I'm not worried. I'm happy. Mike. We're going to be talking to one of the country's leading race drivers and one of the real daredevils of the road. Dag Herford. <laughs> Mr. Herford, I understand that you and your driving partner just completed the Noble Gas Cross Country Race from New York to Los Angeles. That's correct. Uh, we just got in today. Yeah, well, I imagine driving cross country like that is quite a grueling task. Yes. How long did it take you? Uh, it took us a year and a half. <laughs> a year and a half to drive cross country. Well, that's unbelievable. Well, you have to remember, we were driving day and night. <laughs> I understand that you are also an outstanding sports car driver. Now, I imagine accelerating to speeds of 150 miles an hour, that must be pretty dangerous. What actually is the biggest safety factor in a situation like that? Well, you're right, it's dangerous, all right. But mm -hmm. I think the key word here is alert. Alert. See, this is what you have to be. Every muscle toned to perfection because you're mm -hmm. within inches of causing a fatal accident at any given time. So if you're alert, maintain your five senses well, and I think you'll be all right. Yeah, you really have to be sharp, in other words. It just has to come to you immediately, almost like two and two. And, of course, I, that could apply to everyday driving, too. Keeping your mind active and uh, knowing... Four. Four. <laughs> what? Four. Four what? Well, four. Two and two. Four. See, this is oh. how you uh, keep alert. You, you, even in conversation, you just can jump in. Oh, jump sure. right in there. Sure. I was wondering, traveling at those uh, speeds, have you, have you ever rolled over or, you know... Pardon? Rolled over. Have you ever rolled over? Roll over. Roll over. 
Well, if you think it'd be interesting. <laughs> Say, on second thought, uh, could I just sit up and beg? I got a bad knee. No, no, no. I, I mean, have you ever rolled over in a race? Oh, in a, with a car? Oh, yeah. sure, sure. As a matter of fact, I've rolled over in my last 12 races. Really? That's right. Smash them all up? Well, yeah, sure. Well, what do your mechanics say? Uh, they say, he's rolling over again. <laughs> well, there must be some reason to that. Have they, uh, two for that, have they improved your car? Well, yes, they have, yeah. They redesigned the car. Oh, they made it closer to the ground, lower center of gravity, so you wouldn't run on the turns? Uh, no, no, they made it rounder. See, uh, <laughs> uh, she really rolls now. Oh, she rolls really good, yeah. I got a feeling they like to see me roll. But it is, yeah. What, what race are you preparing for now? You... Well, we're preparing now for the Indianapolis 500. Mm-hmm. We'll be down there in February racing. <laughs> yeah, but the, no, the, the Memorial Day race is the 500, and that's just coming right up this, this Yeah, weekend. well, we don't go down there on Memorial Day. We go in February, see, for the race. Uh, you get down there on Memorial Day, it's too crowded. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. There's cars going around there over 100 miles an hour. Yeah, it... Uh... You don't have as much competition in February, and uh, gives you a chance to get the bugs out of the car. You know what I mean. Have you ever won any races? Well, let me see. Now, I came pretty close in the <coughs> Daytona 300 just last oh, month. Oh. Uh, I was leading by six laps. We oh, had really? one lap to go, and uh, I pulled exciting. in for a uh, pit stop and a tire change, and uh, took him an hour and a half, so I ended up last. <laughs> you, were, you only had one lap to go, and you went in for a pit stop? That's right. And you ended up like, I don't understand that. They, today they change a tire in 20, 30 seconds at yeah. the most. Yeah, right. Well, uh, I got in the wrong pit, see. <laughs> so uh, I pulled in, the guys took my tire off, went up on the hill laughing at me. <laughs> They're up there uh, smoking, drinking gas. You know, it's a rough crew. What was the biggest race you were ever in? Well, I was in the Grand Prix, and uh, that's a pretty big race, you know. First sure prize, yeah. seventy-five thousand. Mm-hmm. Second prize, fifty thousand on down. So fantastic, big race, real yeah. big race. Where did you finish? Well, I was in there. I was yeah. in there. Oh, what, what'd you win? I won a lube job. <laughs> how does your wife? How does your wife feel about you being a sports? Well, car uh, she doesn't feel too badly about it. As a matter of fact, uh, she races even with me once in oh. a while, but uh, it, I don't know, it bugs her. She doesn't like it. Well, no, it bugs her. Uh, she doesn't have a windshield on her side. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, she gets those maws up her nose and everything. You know. A moth up your nose is no fun. You aren't kidding. <laughs> uh, I wonder if we could uh, perhaps see your car. Would it be possible to look well, at that? Well, I couldn't bring it in here. The uh, car's a little big. I'll tell you what I could do, though. I got it right outside. I could go out and start her up, and you could at least hear the engine roar up, and I could drive off in her. Oh, great. We'd, okay. we'd enjoy that, wouldn't we? Thank you very much. All right, I'll go out and get her in. We'll be interested to, to hear that. In just a moment, he'll be starting up the 650-horsepower machine. We'll get a chance to hear it. And there he is now. Any moment. Yeah. Burst of power. Well, there he goes. It was very nice of Mr. Herford to come down here today and speak with us and tell us some of the background of being a race, a race car. Oh. What's the matter, Mr. Herford? Oh, I keep forgetting to get in it. <laughs> wow. 
To my surprise, a little Nash Rambler was following me about one third my size. The guy must have wanted to pass me out as he kept. On tooting his horn, I'll show him that a Cadillac is not a car to scorn. Beep, 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 beep. His horn went beep. Beep, beep. I pushed my foot down to the floor to give the guy the shake, but the little Nash Rambler stayed right behind. He still had on his brake. He must have thought his car had more guts as he kept on tooting his horn. I'll show him that a Cadillac is not a car to scorn. Beep beep, beep beep. His horn went beep beep beep. My car went into passing gear and we took off with gust. Soon we were doing ninety. Must have left him in the dust. When I peeked in the mirror of my car, I couldn't believe my eyes. The little Nash Rambler was right behind. I think that guy could fly. Beep beep. Beep beep, his horn went beep beep beep. Now we're doing 110. This certainly was a race for a rambler to pass a caddy would be a big disgrace. The guy must have wanted to pass me out as he kept on tooting his horn. I'll show him that a Cadillac is not a car to scorn. Beep 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 beep. His horn went beep beep beep. Now we're doing 120 as fast as I could go. The rambler pulled alongside of me as if we're going slow. The fellow rolled down his window and yelled for me to hear. Hey buddy, how can I get this car out of? Some of you who have small children may have perhaps been put in the embarrassing position of being unable to do your child's arithmetic homework because of the current revolution in mathematics teaching known as the new math. So as a public service here tonight, I thought I would offer a brief lesson in the new math tonight. We're going to cover subtraction. This is the first room I've worked for a while. It didn't have a blackboard, so we will have to make do with more primitive visual aids, as they say in the ad biz. <laughs> Consider the following subtraction problem, which I will put up here. 342 minus 173. Now, remember how we used to do that. 3 from 2 is 9, carry the 1. And if you're under 35 or went to a private school, you say 7 from 3 is 6. But if you're over 35 and went to a public school, you say 8 from 4 is 6. And carry the one, so we have 169. But in the new approach, as you know, the important thing is to understand what you're doing rather than to get the right answer. <laughs> Here's how they do it now. You can't take three from two, two is less than three, so you look at the four in the tens place. Now that's really four tens, so you make it three tens, regroup, and you change a ten to ten ones, and you add them to the two and get twelve, and you take away three, that's nine. Is that clear? Yeah.
Instead of four in the tens place, you've got three because you added one, that is to say ten to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look in the hundreds place. From the three, you then use one to make ten ones, and you know why four plus minus one plus ten is fourteen minus one, because addition is commutative, right? And so you got thirteen tens, and you take away seven, and that leaves five. Well, six, actually, but... <laughs> The idea is the important thing. <laughs> now go back to the hundreds place. You're left with two and you take away one from two and that leaves... Everybody get one? Not bad for the first day. Hooray for new math. New math. It won't do you a bit of good to review math. It's so simple, so very simple that only a child can do it. Not the answer that I had in mind, because the book that I got this problem out of wants you to do it in base eight. <laughs> but don't panic. Base eight is just like base ten, really, if you're missing two fingers. <laughs> Shall we have a go at it? Hang on. You can't take three from two. Two is less than three, so you look at the four in the eights place. Now that's really four eights, so you make a three eights, regroup, and you change an eight to eight ones, and you add to the two, and you get one two base eight, which is ten base ten, and you take away three, that's seven. Okay? Now instead of four in the eights place, you've got three, because you added one, that is to say eight, to the two, but you can't take seven from three, so you look at the sixty-fours. Sixty-four. How did sixty-four get into it? I hear you cry. Well, 64 is 8 squared, don't you see? Well, you ask a silly question, you get a silly answer. From the 3, you then use 1 to make 8 ones. You add those ones to the 3, and you get 1, 3, base 8. Or in other words, in base 10, you have 11, and you take away 7, and 7 from 11 is 4. Now go back to the 64s. You're left with 2, and you take away 1 from 2, and that leaves... Now let's not always see the same hands. <laughs> One, that's right. Whoever got one can stay after the show and clean the erasers. Hooray for new math, new math. It won't do you a bit of good to review math. It's so simple, so very simple, that only a child can do it. Come back tomorrow night. We're going to do fractions. <laughs>
and show me the light that I may bear witness to the President's Council on Physical Fitness. At oleomargarine, I'll never mutter, for the road to hell is spread with butter, and cream is cursed, and cake is awful, and Satan is hiding in every waffle. Mephistopheles lurks in provolone, the devil is in each slice of bologna, Beelzebub is a chocolate drop, and Lucifer is a lollipop. Give me this day my daily slice. But cut it thin and toast it twice. I beg upon my dimpled knees, deliver me from jujubes. And when my days of trial are done and my war with malted milks is won, let me stand with the saints in heaven in a shining robe, size 37. I can do it, Lord, if you'll show to me the virtues of lettuce and celery, if you'll teach me the evil of mayonnaise, the sinfulness of hollandaise and pasta la milanaise and potatoes a la leonaise and crisp fried chicken from the south. Lord, if you love me, shut my mouth. You know I love that organic cooking, I always ask for more. And they call me Mr. Natural, on down to the health food store. I only eat good sea salt, white sugar don't touch my lips. And my friends is always begging me to take them on macrobiotic trips. Yes they are. All but night I take out my strong box that I keep under lock and key. And I take it off to my closet where nobody else can see. I open that door so slowly, take a peek up north and south. Then I pull out a hostess Twinkie and I pop it in my mouth. Yeah, in the daytime I'm Mr. Natural, just as healthy as I can be. But at night I'm a junk food junkie, good Lord have pity on me. Well, at lunchtime, you can always find me at the Whole Earth Vitamin Bar. Just sucking on my plain white yogurt from a hand-thrown pottery jar. And sipping a little hand-pressed cider with a carrot stick for dessert. And wiping my face in a natural way on the sleeve of my peasant shirt. Oh, yeah. Ah, but when that clock strikes midnight and I'm all by myself, I work at combination on my secret hideaway shelf And I pull out some Fritos corn chips, Dr. Pepper and an old moon pie Then I sit back in glorious expectation of a genuine junk food high In the daytime I'm Mr. Natural Oh yeah, in the daytime I'm Mr. Natural Just as healthy as I can be, oh, but at night I'm a junk food junkie Good Lord, have pity on me, all right. My friends down at the commune, they think I'm pretty neat. Oh, I don't know nothing about arts and crafts, but I give them all something to eat. I'm a friend to old Yule Gibbons, and I only eat homegrown spice. I got a John Keats autographed Grecian urn filled up with my brown rice. Yes, I do. Oh, folks, but lately I have been spotted with a Big Mac on my breath. Stumbling into a Colonel Sanders 
with a face as white as death I'm afraid someday they'll find me just stretched out on my bed With a handful of Pringles potato chips and a ding-dong by my head In the daytime I'm Mr. Nazareth, just the healthiest I can be But at night I'm a junk food junkie, good Lord have pity on me Professor Guy Gadbois, medieval castle authority from Marseille. Tell me, do you have a ring? I do not know what a ring is. Zimmer. Ah, a ring. That is what I have been saying, you idiot. Does your dear go back? No. Nice, dear girl. I thought you said your dog did not bite. That is not my talk. I met a guy today I knew years ago when he was 23. And he was married to a widow who was as pretty as could be. Now this widow had a grown-up daughter who had beautiful hair of red. And this guy's father fell in love with her and soon the two were wed. Now this made the guy's dad his son-in-law and changed his very life. For his daughter was his mother cause she was his father's wife. Now to complicate the matter, even though it brought him joy, he soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. Now his little baby then became a brother-in-law to his dad. And so became his uncle, and though that made him very sad, for if the baby was his uncle, then that also made him brother of the widow's grown-up daughter, who of course was his stepmother. He's his own grandpa. Now you're catching on. He's his own grandpa. Well, naturally, it sounds funny, I know, but really it's so. He's his own grandpa. Well, wait a minute, get a load of this. Now his father's wife then had a son who kept him on the run. So he became his grandchild, for he was his daughter's son. His wife is now his mother's mother, and of course that makes him blue, because although she's his wife, she's his grandmother too. He's his own grandpa. Fun in the living room. He's his own grandpa. Absolutely, it sounds funny, I know, but really it's so. He's his own grandpa. Yeah, but look, get the payoff. Now, if his wife is his grandmother, then he is her grandchild. And every time the guy thinks of it, it nearly drives him wild. For now he has become the strangest case you ever saw. As husband of his grandmother, he's his own grandpa. He's his own grandpa. And loving every minute. He's his own grandpa. Oh, tell me more. It sounds funny, I know. But really, it's so. He's his own grandpa. He's his own grandpa. 
presents Miss Ethel Merman. Must is a must at Texaco. To us is a must we know. You want to be able to always rely on the gasoline, gasoline. motor oil, motor oil. and you bar. In everything that we do at Texaco, we're working to keep your trust. I suppose that the affair of the Red-Headed League was always one of my favorites among Sherlock Holmes's triumphs. When I was writing these memoirs of his adventures that always amused and exasperated him so much, I set it among the earliest. Yet the adventure itself didn't occur until rather late in our relationship. Then one day in the autumn, I went back to the dear old haunt in Baker Street for a visit. Watson, my dear Watson. Oh, I'm sorry, Holmes. I'm afraid you're engaged. So I am. So I am. It's exactly what I meant. Uh, Mr. Wilson, permit me to introduce my good friend, Dr. Watson. Oh, glad to meet you, Dr. Watson. Delighted, Mr. Wilson. Mr. Jabez Wilson Watson, who has this moment appeared with what promises to be a stranger case as we've ever encountered. Apart from his blazing red hair, there might appear to be nothing indeed unusual about Mr. Wilson... Beyond, of course, the obvious fact that he has at some time done manual labor, that he's been to China, and that he's done a considerable amount of writing lately. Upon my soul, Mr. Holmes, how did you know all that? I haven't mentioned a single word. But how? (laughs) You'll have to forgive him, Mr. Wilson. It's a habit of his. All, All the same, Holmes, you mentioned writing. Well, what else do you fancy would explain that shiny right cuff of his, Watson? And the left one, with a smooth patch near the elbow where you rested on the desk. <laughs> all right, then, all right. But China, Holmes? It's the simplest of all. The fish there, tattooed on Mr. Wilson's right wrist. Well, <laughs> I've made a small study of tattoo marks. That trick of staining the fish scales of a delicate pink is quite peculiar to China. <laughs> Upon my soul, and, and I thought at first you'd done something clever, Mr. Holmes. <laughs> there was nothing in it after all. Omni ignotum pro magnifico. Holmes, your reputation will suffer shipwreck if you're always so candid. <laughs> However, the problem, Mr. Wilson, the problem... You were showing me the advertisement. Here it is, Watson. You'd better look at it for yourself. It's from the Morning Chronicle, uh, last April, you see. That was the start of it all. To the Red-Headed League. On account of the bequest of the late Ezekiah Hopkins, there is now another vacancy open. All red-headed men who are sound in body and mind are eligible. Apply in person on Monday at 11 o'clock to Duncan Ross at the offices of the League, 7 
Pope's Court, Fleet Street. <laughs> splendid, quite splendid, isn't it, Watson? <laughs> yes, but, uh, but what, what does it mean in all the world? Uh, pray, do you go on, Mr. Wilson? Well, as I was just going to explain to Mr. Holmes, Doctor, I've got a small pawnbroker's business at Coburg Square. Oh, yes, that, that's near the city, isn't quite it? Quite a lucrative line of business, I'd fancy. No, no. It doesn't do much more than give me a living. Oh. Uh, I'd hardly have enough to cover the wages, except that my young assistant's willing to come for half pay, so as to learn the business. And what is the name of this obliging youth? Uh, Spaulding. Vincent Spaulding. Oh, he's first rate. Couldn't wish for better. Except there never was such a fella for photography. Huh? Yes, he's snapping away with his camera every minute he is and then diving down into the cellar like a rabbit to develop his pictures. Ah, into the cellar? It, he's still with you, I take it? Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, it was young Spaulding who drew my attention to this advert, Doctor. Came into the office one day with that very paper in his hand. I'll tell you what, Mr. Wilson. I just wish to the Lord that I was a red-headed man, the same way you are. Just look. Famous red-headedly. As far as I can reckon, the league was founded by one of them American millionaires, sir, an Ezekiah Hopkins, same as it says there. And he was mighty queer in his ways, they say. He was a redhead himself, you see. And when he died, they found he'd left his fortune to provide him jobs for men that was county-haired like he was. And so, uh, that was the whole way of it, Mr. Holmes. Well... I went along that Monday, and I've never seen such a sight in all my life. There wasn't a man in all London with a red hair in his head that hadn't turned up at Pope's Court. Oh, anyway, I, I got in at last to the office where Mr. Duncan Ross was sitting. Very plain it was, with a deal table and a couple of chairs. And this Mr. Ross was a little quick kind of man, and he had a head that was even redder than mine, if you believe it. And the minute he saw me, he was up like a shot. Mr. Wilson, he cries. Mr. Wilson. Heaven bless you, Mr. Wilson. It's marvellous. What a head. What a shade. Well, well I'm delighted, Mr. Ross. One, one moment, though. Uh, you'll excuse me, will you, Mr. Wilson? Uh, oh. Ah, thank you, thank you. I just had to give it that one small tug to, to see that you were genuine. We've been tricked twice by wigs, Mr. Wilson, and once by paint. Uh, you're married, of course? Uh, no, sir. What? Oh, a pity, a pity. The fund was for the propagation of redheads, too, of course, besides their maintenance. Eh? Still, I think we could stretch a point for such a remarkable crop as yours. Uh, uh, when could you take up your duties? Uh, well, uh, the, the job's yours, of course, with such a shade. Well, almost any time, I suppose. Uh, my assistant's very reliable in my shop business. Uh, ten to two every day, Mr. Wilson, in this office. The pay, four pounds a week. And the work, Mr. Ross? Purely nominal. The only condition is that you've to be in the office the whole time. Uh, if you leave it for even a minute, you forfeit your whole position forever. Uh, the will's very clear on that point. Oh, I wouldn't dream of it, Mr. Rossi. Oh, it's only four hours a day after all. Uh, what is it that I have to do, though? To copy out the Encyclopedia Britannica. And there I sat, Mr. Holmes, day after day. I wrote about abbots and archery and armour and architecture. I thought I might get even to the bees before I expired. 
<laughs> and you were paid. On the nail, sir. Oh, I will say that for them every Friday. But then suddenly, just suddenly, the, the old thing came to an end. Before the bees, after all, Mr. Wilson. This very morning, Doctor, there was this square of white cardboard nailed to the office door. Look. The red-headed league is hereby dissolved. October 1890. From what I've heard, I think it's very possible that graver issues hang from the singular episode of the red-headed league than appear at first sight. Uh, what's in the door for Mr. Wilson, then? Yes. Mrs. Hudson will show him the street. Yes, yes. Good day again, Mr. Wilson. And my thanks for bringing me a problem that is quite worthy of me. Uh, thank you, Mr. Holmes. Goodbye. We went out at last to the city as it suggested. We travelled by the new-fashioned underground as far as Aldersgate. And a short walk took us to Coburg Square, which was a pokey, shabby, genteel little place. And halfway along... Three gilt balls and a brown board with Jabez Wilson on it announced the place where our red-headed client had carried on his business. Sherlock Holmes stopped in front of it and, to my surprise... Splendid, Watson, splendid. Now the door, my dear fellow, if you'd be good enough. Ah, certainly, Holmes, certainly. It does seem a more orthodox manner of attracting attention than knocking on the pavement, as you've just done. <laughs> I must say, I'd like to know why you... Well, what do you want? Ah, thank you, my good man. I only wish to ask you how you'd go to the Strand from here. Third right, fourth left. Good day. <laughs> Admirable. Uh, come, Watson, let us walk. Ah, smart fellow, that. The good Spalding himself. Evidently. Mr. Wilson's assistant seems to count very largely in this business of the redheads. I take it that you only asked him your way for the sake of seeing him. Not him, Watson. The knees of his trousers. Indeed? And what did you see? What I expected to see. Huh? Let me see. Uh, I'd just like you, Watson, to observe the order of the houses at the corner here. Hmm? Well, uh, there, there, there's Mortimer's, the tobacconist, and the little newspaper shop over there, and there's the Coburg Square branch of the City and Suburban Bank, the Vegetarian Restaurant, McFarlane's, the Carriage Building Depot. Excellent, exactly. Well, we've done our work for this afternoon, Doctor, and now we are free until ten o'clock tonight. Till ten? Ten, precisely. I've some little business myself in the interval, but at ten tonight, Watson, if you love me, meet me there by McFarlane's Depot. I'll come by handsome, and I may have some companions with me, Oh, and Watson. Yeah? Your army revolver. Ten. Ah, Watson. Holmes. Ah, Watson, I think you'll remember our old colleague here from Scotland Yard, Mr. Athelney Jones. Oh, of course, that old adventure of the sign of four. How did you do, Jones? Happy to see you again, Dr. Watson. Like old times, isn't it? And this, Watson, is Mr. Merriweather, who is to be our other companion in tonight's adventures. How did you do, sir? Watson, will you lead the way? Ah. For you, Mr. Merriweather, I may say, tonight's stake is of some 30,000 pounds at the least. And for you, Jones... The man you've been longing to lay your hands on for many a year. John Clay, murderer and thief. If you're right, Holmes. Upon my soul. 
A remarkable man, John Clay, Dr. Watson. His grandfather was a royal duke, they say, and he's been to Eton and Oxford, and yet there isn't a dirty trip on the calendar. Mr. Merriweather Watson is a director of the City and Suburban Bank. I made a contact with him and Jones after I left you this afternoon. He is about to lead us by a very private door to the vaults of the bank itself. The vaults? The vaults, Watson, which we are all sitting now. Ah, French gold, Dr. Watson. French gold. We'd occasion to borrow some to strengthen our resources. Uh, that crate you're sitting on contains 2,000 Napoleons packed in lead foil. Phew. 2,000 Napoleons. The one Mr. Jones is sitting on contains 4,000. Now, how goes the time? Ah, Watson, pray darken the lantern. Wait, wait. wait. That earlier than I thought after all. Quiet now. Holmes, the floor there, opening. I can see an edge of light. Quiet, Watson. So, got you, Clay. What the big... Quick, Watson. I warn you, we're armed, Clay. Yeah. I've got him, Holmes. I've got him. Hold hard, you scoundrel. I'll shoot. Clay, John Clay, caught in the very act. Get a There's another of them there along the underground tunnel. Run for it, Russ. Run, run. So use, Clay. The other entrance is covered, too. Your friend's had his run. They'll get him at the other end. Confound it. That's a fair cop, then. So, you've got us after all, whoever you are. Scotland Yard, Clay. Sherlock Holmes, at your service. What? Oh, it would be. Well, I've never met you, Sherlock Holmes, but... Uh... <laughs> well, well, uh, I, guess I, I guess I've heard about you. <laughs> And if I had to be taken by anybody at the very point of a fortune, uh, I reckon it's you that I'd choose. Oh, thank you. May I say in return that your red-headed idea was one of the most effective I've ever encountered. Jones, he's yours. Mr. Merriweather, your French bullion is safe. Thank heaven for it. Hold out your hands, Clay, alias Spalding. I beg you no, Mr. Jones. You may not be aware of it, but I have royal blood in my veins. Well, it was a decent fight, and I lost. I'll go quietly. Thank you. Well, you're certain, Mr. Holmes. Good night. Good night, Mr. Clay. Mr. Jones. Ah, oh, good night. Good night, Jones. Good night. And so, that's that. You solved it, Holmes, as you promised. The League of the Red-Headed Men. Yes, Watson. It was perfectly obvious from the start, of course, that the only possible object of the whole thing must be to get rid of that not overbright pawnbroker of ours for a certain period every day. It was the colour of the fellow's hair, of course, that suggested it all. Every bit of it. Clay, alias Spalding, took a job at half pay as Wilson's assistant so as to be near those cellars where he knew the bullion was stored. <laughs> that was smart. Well, he had an accomplice. That man who called himself Duncan Ross. <laughs> he managed between them to guarantee Wilson's absence from his shop for hours on end, weeks on end. And while he's toiling away, they're burrowing their way like moles from his premises towards the gold. But what set you on the trail, though, Holmes? The photography. Hmm? That business of disappearing to the cellar for so long at a time. Uh, did I surprise you, Watson, by beating on the pavement? <laughs> well, I was checking on the hollowness of the tunnel between Wilson's place and the bank. I looked at Spalding's knees when we met him in his role of the Cockney shopman. And there they were, worn and stained from that endless digging of his. The thing was as clear as daylight. But how could you tell that they'd make their attempt tonight? They'd closed the league offices. They no longer needed Mr. Jabez Wilson's absence. 
And it's a Saturday, Watson. It'll give them two clear whole days for their escape. Ah, uh, you reasoned it beautifully, Holmes. The case of the red-headed league. One more among so many. Well, well. I'm ready! And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Riviera Hotel very proudly presents the star of our show, the lovable Miss Tony Fields. Hello! Hello! What's the matter? You're shocked, huh? You didn't think I'd be this adorable in person, right? See, they needed something precious, and this is it. How do you like the dress? Could you drop dead from that dress? Since I lost weight, I can wear anything. <laughs> I used to be heavy. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I was obese. This is the new Tony Fields. Look how adorable. I look like a pregnant bouquet in this dress, don't I? Hey, did you hear him say it? Did you hear him say, the star of the show? I get goosebumps. I stand backstage every night, and I wait. He said, here she is, the star of the show. You want to know, whoever dreamt, I never see my name on the side with Humperdinck or Pumperdinck. <laughs> and to think I changed my name from Sophie Feldman yet. <laughs> but like, while you're laughing, I want you to know something. Only two years ago, I rode by this hotel every day in a taxi cab, and I returned to the passengers in the back, and I'd say, someday, <laughs> Someday. But you know, I started here in Las Vegas. I don't know if you realize that. Right across the street at the Stardust Hotel. I was in the Lido show. Did you know that? Yes, I was in the line. I was the last four girls from the end. And I almost died when my manager called me up and he said, Tony, honey, they want you to go to, to Vegas and make a comeback. I said, you're kidding. I said, what'll I do in Las Vegas? What'll I do for the folks? Shall I do all the things that you people adore? The things that your toady is so famous for? Shall we travel together down memory lane and recall all the things that brought toady her fame? God bless me. How many of you out there remember me in The Wizard of Oz? That many. And the rest of you can leave. Do you remember me when I sang on the good ship Lollipop? Whoever dreamt Shirley Temple would grow up to be this adorable. Look at poor Jane Withers as a plumber. Do you remember when I was in Peter Pan? I can fly, I can fly. I wasn't Peter Pan, I was Captain Hook. You know what I was? I was the counterweight at the other end of the rope. And every time they wanted Mary Martin to fly, somebody would push me off a plank. But I said to my manager, listen, manager. That's his name, Howie Manager. I says, I want to go out on that stage and I want that audience to love me. He said, then, Tony, he says, you go out there and you sell the one thing that you've got more of than any other female in show business. Sex. 
on her sea lips Like you've never seen before You're gonna see hips You'll remember evermore You're gonna see passion That'll set your pulses on fire You're gonna see fashion Not many women acquire A voice when it speaks That is inconceivable You're gonna see cheeks everywhere, huh? See, I get up. I, nobody looks like this by mistake. I work at this body. I get up every day. I don't care what the weather. And I jog. Look, firm like a rock. And nothing moves. Look, every day. And that's just to go to the toilet. I run like that. Sometimes I make it. Sometimes I don't. You want to know something? I'm jogging almost three months. I haven't lost a pound. But I'm so chafed. That's all it does. It rubs you out. You hear what I'm telling you? I'm going to end up with a big, fat body, skinny legs, and two holes up here. 
And you know what else I do, kids? Very, very important. Watch, good for you. Look at it. Watch this. I take my fingers under the chin like this. One hour, pat, 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 look. Look how thin my fingers are over there. You're gonna see eyes that have not been matched before. You're gonna see thighs. Wanna see my tattoo? That could start another war. And when you put them all together, what do you see? You see intoxicating, scintillating, Well, that's it for tonight. We hope the podcast entertained you at least slightly or annoyed you enough to take your mind off your troubles for a while. Take care, everybody. See you next month. But before we go, this time Jimmy Sweets has one last thing. James, what do you have for us? Well, nothing short of my daughter's musical debut. We all know COVID's been on everybody's mind, not to mention uh, our youngsters. So we put together a little song that uh, complains about everything that my daughter's feeling anxious about. And it's entitled Douche Monkey. Enjoy. So, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. See you next month. Serial killers. Douche Monkey. Online Predators. Douche Monkey. Douche monkey.